Hello, everybody. Dr. Lonnie Stewart here from the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. Are you a physical therapy student about to start studying for the National Physical Therapy Examination? Or maybe you're a professor, a program director, or a clinical instructor who teaches DPT students preparing for the NPTE? Either way, we would recommend checking out our sponsor, NPTE Final Frontier, and the community they've built around preparing for and succeeding on the NPTE. That exam and the preparation that goes along with it can be long, tedious, difficult, and stress-inducing, but it doesn't have to be. NPTE Final Frontier has the tactics and resources to help address all of the usual barriers. They even have scholarships to help with NPTE study courses, FSBPT registration fees, and even research opportunities. And if that's not enough, they're even donating to the very first annual HET Podcast Scholarship to be awarded at the end of every year. Go to NPTEFF.com for all of the details and use code HET for 10% off all purchases. Links to both the NPTE Final Frontier and their scholarship options are available in the show notes. And now, let's get ready to learn. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. F. Scott Field, and I've got with me today a very special guest, Dr. Rebecca Dittweiler. Doc, tell us a little bit about your academic journey and how it led you to where you are today. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm really excited to be here, Scott. My journey started as a clinician in an outpatient orthopedic practice. And I always knew I wanted to teach, but I wasn't really sure at what level. And so I started teaching students in the clinic and pursued my board certification in orthopedics. And slowly but surely, I started teaching a little bit more. And um, I work at the University of South Florida, where we have a faculty-run clinic. So I started teaching mostly primary clinical courses. And and I met Dolly Swisher, who's one of my mentors. And she is really kind of a founding expert in ethics and professionalism. And I kind of got the itch for that. And so I started uh, pursuing education in theoretical and applied ethics. And then now I'm actually finishing, well, I shouldn't say finishing, I'm in the dissertation phase of my PhD in ethical leadership with the focus on higher education. And so I've really kind of taken the whole dive in academics. However, I still uh, maintain my clinical practice and, and specialty, and I participate in orthopedic residency. And so I have my hands in many places, but uh, it definitely keeps my life interesting. And it's landed to be a place where I'm very happy with what I'm doing. So, yeah, likewise. That's uh, having all those opportunities and kind of keeping all those uh, pots going all at once. You know, it, to me, that gives you a lot of satisfaction. It kind of, you know, gives you a, a, a lot of opportunity and different directions to go in. So I'm a huge fan. So yeah, let's get into the, the meat and potatoes of today's episode a little bit. Uh, one of uh, your areas of expertise and something that you got to talk about at CSM. Tell us a little bit about moral injury. What, what would you define moral injury as? Uh, thanks for the question. You know, this is a, a really important topic and it's really timely because the pandemic has really shown us that moral injury does happen in healthcare workers. So historically, moral injury was something that was documented in people post-war or traumatizing experiences, think disasters, uh, where something highly transgressive would have occurred. In the COVID-19 pandemic, this became sort of an area of interest for scholars to look to see is this happening in healthcare workers. And so a moral injury event would be something that is highly transgressive and is against one's moral code. So an example of that might be, let's say you were a healthcare worker during the pandemic and you witnessed someone die alone. And in your moral code, it would be highly important that a patient would have family, 
surrounded by them the ability to say goodbye and you witness this event happen and it's out of your control. Uh, that might be an example of a healthcare worker witnessing something that could be a potentially morally injurious event. People think of moral injury as something that's highly transgressive, something that's uh, severe in nature and has long-term consequences for the person who experiences it. But other people think about it as more of a continuum from moral distress to moral injury. So moral distress would be potentially you could think about it as less severe, where somebody would have a similar event, something that they're constrained from doing what they think is the best thing. Um, let's say you have a patient who has specific healthcare needs. Maybe they need a, a specific wheelchair or services, but you're unable to give that to the patient because they can't afford it. Their insurance company doesn't cover it. That could cause moral distress because you know what's right and you can't do it. Um, that's one example. But there are different types of constraints that can cause that. And some people believe that repeated moral distress can also lead to moral injury. So you have these episodes that happen over and over again and ultimately lead to this injurious sort of state where you have these long-lasting physical effects. Some people compare it to burnout, but it is a different, distinct idea. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit because I have heard it almost used interchangeably at times, and I think it's it's pretty different, actually, if you really look at it. Can you go into some of the differences between moral injury and burnout? Definitely. So I would think about um, burnout is is typically, not always, but typically uh, related to work expectations. So your work expects too much of you or maybe you have too many patients. You're expected to be too productive. And the work expectations don't meet what you're physically able to do or mentally able to do. And there's an imbalance of those expectations. And that can lead to similar type of distressing symptoms, but for different reasons. And typically, moral distress or moral injury relates really specifically to your own moral code, what you think is right and why is something not driving with that? So what are the things that, you know, you personally as an individual have to kind of have an idea what your moral code is and for some people, an incident might be more injurious than another. And so the key, I think, is moral distress can have a component in burnout. So if you're experiencing moral distress repeatedly, that could lead to symptoms similar to burnout. But it's a separate cause uh, rather than burnout might be, again, more work expectations, kind of the organizational components with the individual capacity, if you think about it that way. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I, I, I can see the delineation there. What what are some, speaking of symptoms, what are some things you're seeing happen because of moral injury? Like, what are some of the signs, the symptoms, the overall outcomes that healthcare workers are experiencing because yeah. of moral injury? Well, and I think for moral injury, so if you think about something that's a highly transgressive event, this could lead to severe mental health issues for a healthcare provider. So stress, anxiety, um, depression, you know, all of that has been documented in healthcare workers. Now, a lot of the research is really in physicians and nurses uh, on the front lines of the COVID pandemic, but we certainly know that it's possible um, and that some physical therapists and physical therapist assistants experience this during the pandemic. In fact, uh, myself, Dolly Swisher and Dustin Hardwick, my colleagues, we did a study where we interviewed people during the pandemic to see about their experiences as it relates to ethics. And it seems very clear to us that in many settings, physical therapists did also experience moral injury, where, again, sort of the same ideas of people dying alone, people not getting the care they needed, or some really striking examples of PT assistants not having the support they need and feeling very helpless, uh, watching patients not get the care they need, maybe patients being assigned a do not resuscitate order when it wasn't actually in place, 
a lot of things uh, occurring that I think probably occurred before, but because they were just so much more frequent and all in this one time period, it allowed people to look into this and say, gosh, this is really happening in our profession. It's something we need to pay attention to because ultimately this could lead someone to leave the profession. And if you follow any of the data about healthcare, a lot of people are intending to leave healthcare and a lot of people are dissatisfied with their jobs. You know, I think for me, one of the most important things I learned from that is, okay, well, burnout's important, right? We don't want people burned out from their job. We have to have realistic expectations for them. But if we're coming at it from simply an organizational perspective of, well, we just have to balance the expectations, let's offer free massages and pizza. Well, that's not going to solve a moral distress problem. If it's really that that's leading to some of these symptoms, which can look very similar, it's problematic. So I think really taking a look at what's causing these symptoms for people is really important and having it be in your organization about what's going on with your employees um, and as an individual recognizing what is it that's causing the distress that I'm feeling? Yeah, I mean, that's that's huge, really, because, you know, you have to be able to spot those signs and symptoms and, you know, be able to differentiate. And then I think really then the next question becomes, all right, so what do we do about it? How do right. we address this? What do we, you know, we see them, we've identified it. How do we handle it as as healthcare providers? Absolutely. Well, and this is really great. And, and, you know, I think historically people have thought of moral distress as an individual problem, right? Like, well, it's your code and it's violating your code. So it's your fault. Right. And really just to be more resilient. Right. Just just figure out how to deal with it. And and a lot of the research has just shown that that's just not the case. Organizations still have to create environments where people are allowed to say this is not OK with me and this is not OK for my patient and finding ways that we talk about issues that are moral issues, ethical issues in everyday practice. It's the interest, most interesting thing in our study that we did. We asked people, you know, do you have ethical problems? And most people say no. But then when you ask them things like, well, do you have issues with how many patients you have to see? Or how about what kind of care you give patients? Or is this the right thing to do? Oh, all the time. So, you know, it's just about making the language commonplace and making um, areas and venues for us to have moral dialogue. So not just about oh, I have to see this many patients, but this is distressing to me because I feel like I'm not giving them the right care, right? It's not so much the amount, the care that I'm giving that's distressing to me. You know, I'm cutting things off on the front and the back end. They're not getting my best. You know, those are the kind of things that I think we have to make commonplace to have dialogue and, and start to say, well, what are things we can do about that uh, on the individual level, but then on the organizational level, but without the language and without the, the culture of being able to talk about that, I think it's difficult. Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head there, right? It, it really starts with culture. From an academic standpoint, that starts with like the classroom, right? Like I want to make sure that my classroom is a safe space for my students to learn, but also to have these hard conversations and have these discussions to open up to those, those conversations, which as difficult as they may be, it may be, you know, a necessity. So That's if you look at the, the workplace, right, and you look at the bigger picture, when you're working in healthcare fields, when you're working in, you know, hospital systems and, and bigger systems, if it's not a healthy culture, if it's not a great place to, to feel safe and share these things and have these conversations, it can be a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, this is just, again, totally my experience. It, it's not necessarily always the system as much as it, is, as it is maybe individuals as far as like managers. You know, like you hear that cliche phrase that people don't leave bad systems, they leave bad management. A lot of times it seems like to me it can be a bottleneck where it's maybe just one person or one manager that's, you know, 
kind of getting in the way and causing this this rift. What what are you guys seeing out there as far as like, you know, bigger picture as far, you know, as far as maybe what what could be the cause or, or the root? Yeah. So I think that that is definitely one issue. Leadership is, I think, a huge part of it. And and I want to go back to one other thing you said about, um, you know, prepping students in the classroom. So I think when you look at the data about moral distress, it's more likely to occur in younger individuals with less experience. And part of that, I think, is they lack experience dealing with the issues. Maybe we protect them when we're out and we're CIs and we're saying, well, don't worry about that part. I'll handle that while you're a student. But really trying to make that something that we have intentional dialogue about the things that we're doing, that we're advocating for, organizational issues we are taking on maybe as individuals or teams. I think that's something we can do sooner so that students become more comfortable advocating for things they're uncomfortable with and also naming what's going on rather than just feeling discomfort and not knowing what it is. Well, I have a pit in my stomach. This doesn't feel right. Well, why is that? I think that's a practice we could start early. I think, think as far as organizations go, I think there are multiple levels where this could be uh, occurring and, and causing issues. So, you know, historically, like I said, individuals are thought of as the problem of moral distress, but so much more we're looking at complex organizations and that really being the place that supports the individual experiencing moral distress. Because if you experience it, it's an individual experience, right? But in the context of where you're working, right? It's never, you know, I mean, what could happen in other places, but in the, the context of what we're discussing, it's in healthcare, right? And dealing with patients in that context. So every patient encounter is, you know, flavored by what's going on in the organization. You know, it could be the team lead that's part of the problem, right? That, you know, hey, I've got to tell this person up the chain and they're not relaying my concerns. It could be unrealistic expectations from a higher up level that is coming down through a manager that then is implementing that. And now for a quick shout out to our newest sponsor, Varela Financial. If you're a physical therapist and you have student loan debt, you got to talk to these guys. What makes them unique is that they view financial planning like running hurdles on a track. And for PTs, the first hurdle many of us run into is student loan debt. Varela Financial will help you get over that hurdle. They not only take the time to explain to you which plans you individually qualify for and how those plans work, but they also take the time to show you what your individual case looks like mapped out within each option. So if you're looking for help on your student loan debt or any area of personal finances, we recommend working with them. I use Varela Financial personally, and they were able to help me lower my student loan repayment from about $1,800 a month down to about $135 per month simply by finding the right repayment plan that best fit me, my family, and our life goals. You can check them out at varelafinancial.com. Link is in the show notes if you need it for reference, and tell them the HET podcast crew sent you. And now back to the show. But I think as anything we've learned from the pandemic, it's really about communication and it's about change organizations. Can you be an organization that can change with the times? Can you be prepared? Can you really listen to the people that are on the ground doing the job and make changes up and then the way back down? You know, I think that's really important. And I'll give you a really great example that was actually published in the paper we, we had in PTJ and acute care where... The organizational leadership heard all these problems from employees about PPE and how to manage PPE during the pandemic. And so they thought, well, I'm going to listen to this and I'm going to make a new system and I'm going to implement this PPE change, right? And so they implemented this new system and it didn't work. The employees started using it and they would go to take off their PPE and there wasn't a trash can where they needed a trash can. You know, it's like simple logistical things of like, this is a great intent, bad execution, right? So it's really about 
finding ways to communicate where you're actually listening, you know what's going on in your organization, and you find ways to actually have support for the people who are doing the job. Because ultimately, organizations are injured when people are leaving, right? And they need more people to supply healthcare. And then ultimately, healthcare in the long run is is going to be, I think, in, in trouble if we continue to lose people at the rate that we are. It's going to be a problem. Hopefully, we can find ways to turn this around. But I think there's a lot of attention on burnout and maybe a little less on this moral distress piece. And it's pretty important. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that a little bit then. So if we want to do something about this, if we want to try to, you know, get it ahead of it before it becomes a, a major issue uh, or gets any worse than it already is, what are some resources that we can use? Where can we go? What, how can we learn more? Where would you send people to kind of start getting, you know, more well-versed in, in moral injury? So the Ethics and Judicial Committee, which I sit on, is is really working to try to collate resources for people in many different areas. And this is one of them, which is why we put on our talk about moral distress and moral injury. And I think that's one step. So looking for the American Physical Therapy Association to p- supply resources. I think a lot of this is is knowledge, is power, right? So the more we can disseminate information about this and the likelihood that this is going to continue is, is very high, I think. And I think as healthcare becomes more complex, the issues become more complex and the transgressions or the things that are, are problematic for us become more prevalent. Having national national organizations that are, are supporting this is really important. I think even at a state and national level, like in a government level, I think there's opportunity for us to advocate uh, resources, funding being allocated towards research in this area, finding coalitions of people in different healthcare sectors that are experiencing the same thing. Because let's be realistic, we're all in this, doing this together. And so there have been some pretty interesting authors who've come together interprofessionally and looked for collaboratives and things that we can come together with other professionals to try to find ways to combat this. But I will say, it's just my observation that I think a lot of the focus has been on the burnout side in this funding and and really literature is coming around. But that is something I think in physical therapy, we have very little information about. If you you know look at moral distress in physical therapy, there's like two studies that come up. It's not very many. Um, and then in nursing, there's a lot more because they have a really, uh, I think, a bigger issue in that area. Um, and they have some other interesting cultural issues in nursing that they've spent a bit more time looking at this already. So they're a little ahead of the game. So I think we can learn from other professions and the things they've done. But I think there really is a, an opportunity for innovation here and us to really take a look at our our professional resources and what really needs to be there. Because I would say at the moment, it's kind of at the ground level and could be a lot greater. Yeah, for sure. So I guess let's talk about that next then. Like if you had to give like, you know, one takeaway or one bit of advice or, you know, uh, how we can be innovative in addressing this, what, w- what would you tell to the audience that's like, huh, I didn't even consider this. It's just getting going. I want to know more about it. What's your takeaway or your your best bit of advice for the the audience listening? If it's okay with you, I'm going to take that from a like an individual, like higher up level. So I think Please. on an individual level, I think really having your your ethical language at, at the ready. So what is this that's bothering me so I can actually dissect this and then figure out what to do about it? It's really problematic if you just experience a gut feeling and you don't take the time to process it. So talking about it and knowing what to say, I think is really important. The other thing I think that's important is in healthcare teams. So thinking at a little larger team level, an individual on a team is really being able to recognize when someone else is experiencing distress and how to support that person. 
So a really great example that uh, Deborah Gordon Vader gave in our um, recorded version of this was a, an ethics thermometer. Like, what's your temperature like right now? Where's your level of comfort? Are you at a low level or a high level? And if you're at a high level, what can we do to support you? And, and what's going on with that? Why are you feeling so distressed? So that could be one thing you could do as a team. As an organization, I think just being aware of what the issues are. And if you don't ask, you can't intervene, right? So if you don't know what's going on with your population of people, that you, maybe it's a few, maybe it's hundreds, you can't do anything about that. So I think being aware of what the level of, you know, maybe it's burnout, maybe it's moral distress, maybe there's specific things you want to measure in your employees so you can figure out what are the things that would actually work in this context. Because to say one solution works for everybody would be wrong. I think it's really contextually dependent. And it would depend upon what the organization's needs are. And I think in a, a larger like societal view is really raising awareness, raising funds for research, um, and then really targeting some, some resources towards this area would be very helpful in the long run for the profession to make sure that we you know, survive and that we have a workforce that can take care of the public that is aging and continues to need our care. You know, I think that's really important. Yeah, we, we definitely need it. That's for sure. We're going to be... Uh dealing with this baby boomer population coming down the pike. So I think it's important that we uh, gear up and get ready for what's about to come, because I think it's uh, definitely could get crazy moving forward here. Well, Becca, thank you so much for for taking the time and for coming on here. We, we like to ask all of our guests this final question. And that question is, if you could change one aspect of higher education, whether it be DPT or otherwise, what aspect would you change and how would you change it? Oh, that's such a deep question. You know, one of the things that is something that I'm obviously very passionate about, you know, ethics and professionalism. You know, I think sometimes we take that as sort of a secondary curriculum or things that are important or addition to, right? Like, well, that's nice to know. Is it a need to know thing? And I think it really needs to be sort of the core of what we're teaching, because if you can make a moral practitioner, someone who makes good decisions, who's aware of themselves, who knows their values, who knows what matters, I think they're going to be the people that do good things regardless of what we teach them, right? It's it's really about, you know, enculturating people and finding ways that students can actively participate and get those meaningful experiences to form their professional identity. I think that's really important and something that has to be an active process. It's not something you can write in an essay or do in one experience. It's a process. So I think Finding ways that we can engage students to become the people that they wish to be, you know, the professionals they wish to be, and that will meet the needs of our future is essential. And I think making that kind of the core of what we do and kind of the underlying theme rather than this extra thing on the side would really make a difference in how people come out of our professional programs. And I think some programs do that and some, I think, less, you know, again, rather than thinking about it as ancillary, but core to what we do, I think would make a huge difference. Yeah, I love that take. As somebody who teaches uh, the professionalism uh, in our curriculum, I think that it is a core foundational thing that we have to kind of start with, right? Because if you have that moral compass, uh, you know, which hopefully a lot of our students do right off the bat. It's a lot easier than to build off it and grow and get stronger in that and just be able to make good decisions and do the right thing, right? Because again, like at the end of the day, it's very golden rule type stuff, right? Doing the right thing is always the right thing. And the more we can reinforce that, I think it really does help with critical thinking and clinical decision making down the line. Absolutely. It gets super difficult sometimes for sure. There's some hard situations where doing the right thing is, you know, maybe frowned upon or not looked looked that great. So again, you've got to have that. It's like, hey, 
I know this doesn't look great, but I have to do it because it's the right thing. It is what it is. I'm stuck in my moral conviction. I have to stick with this. My North Star is guiding me, right? So. And I love what you just said. You know, I think that, you know, ethical reasoning, moral reasoning and clinical reasoning are, are intertwined. You can't separate the two because to think about a situation just clinically with ignoring that is missing the picture. And most of the time when clinicians struggle, it's not clinical reasoning. It's this other reasoning piece of what do I do and how does this make sense in the context of this clinical problem? So I, I really love that, you know, kind of tying those together, I think, is something that we could do better as a profession. And again, that active process of engaging, reflection, and really, you know, making students aware of what it means. And I think, you know, to uphold our contract with society and what it means to be a profession and a professional yeah. is really critical. And in a time when the society needs us a lot right now, there's a lot of things going on in our healthcare system, and we are key players and we want to be the physical therapists and physical therapist assistants that we we need to be, you know, to kind of meet that need. So, you know, I think really reframing maybe some of our values and our thoughts around that would be really valuable. Yeah. I mean, I tell my students right off the bat, day one, like, look, just always be the consummate professional and you'll probably have very few problems. Right. I mean, that's if you just do that at the very least, right? Because nowadays, especially with the the generation that we're dealing with that has so much involved with social media and putting everything out there for, for the world to see, it's like, if you wouldn't want it on a billboard, then probably don't do it, right? Like, because well, I, your reputation is essentially what, what you're dealing with now with morals and ethics. Like all of that and who you are is really your your brand, your individual yep. personal brand. And that's now what what your reputation was is now who you are and your brand. So absolutely. Well, I think young professionals have some issues to navigate around social media and the way that we engage with the public. I think that's sort of a new territory. And from an ethical perspective, there are a lot of things to be explored about that, of which I'm not an expert, by the way. But I think, you know, there are some unique things that I think people do and don't even think about the ethical implications and what it means. And, and really, is that an appropriate use of that you know, media? So I think, yeah, that's one example of the things that if we teach people to be the people that learn about and have a professional identity that's strong, they can solve those problems as they navigate them because they're new and no one's told them what to do about it. But they know what to do and they know how to work through an issue. So, yeah, I, I appreciate that question. That's a great Great question. Absolutely. Well, I love your take on it. And Becca, thank you so much for, for like I said, coming on and sharing your, t your time with us. Um, where can people reach out to you and find you if they have more questions or follow up or just want to see what you're up to these days? Yep. Yeah, well, I um, work at the University of South Florida. So if you look me up there, Rebecca Edgeworth Detweiler, it's um, my emails on the website. And also, if you have any specific questions for the Ethics and Judicial Committee, it's ejc at apta.org. If there's kind of more general questions for us, we'd be happy to chat and kind of promote this topic and other ethics related topics as people need them. So that's really our role. And we're, we've got a group of five really amazing, uh, strong individuals that are really committed to ethics in the profession. So it's been a really great time to work with them and their awesome colleagues, and they would be happy to help too. Awesome. We'll drop those links in the show notes so everybody can find you easily. Becca, thank you so much. We appreciate you. Absolutely. Well, I hope that episode was entertaining as much as it was informational and educational. If you enjoyed this episode or any of our past episodes, we ask you to please subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and review. And please share out the episodes to those who you feel may be able to benefit from them. We also urge you to follow us on all social media platforms at HET Podcast and let us know what topics or experts you would like to hear from in future episodes. 
And just as a reminder, none of the information on today's show should be considered medical advice. It's simply infotainment or edutainment to help educate our audience. For medical advice, we always advise you to reach out to your preferred medical professionals, and we'll see you on the next show.